you fired up guys that last episode was all sorts of fun all the things not to do when trying to qualify for a mortgage we had so much content in that last episode that we had to make a part two and today's episode is part two of all the things not to do we talk a lot more about uh properties uh what to look for in your qualification process like quite literally this is a a to z the last couple of episodes on things what you really want to avoid but if you look at it the other way around, we're giving you guys a very, very clear guide as to what the things are that you can do to have a ton of success. And this is so important, guys. This episode applies to real estate agents, investors, uh, people buying their first home, second home, third home, fourth home, short, sweet, focused episodes on things to avoid. And hopefully this will save you guys a whole lot of stress and uh, money in the long run in terms of making sure to make good financial decisions. What's up guys, I'm Alex McFadden here, uh, one of the partners at Thrive Mortgage Co. and the host of the YBR Remo Show. This episode was a fun one. We got the whole crew back together, Dean Lawton and Derek Williamson, always, always, always giving their parts on um, just daily trends and what to look out for. Uh, if you guys are liking the show, we ask for one thing from you guys, and it's a five-star review. And to, I guess there's two things, a five-star review and to tell somebody else. So if, if you're cool with doing one or two of those things, we would love you. If you haven't left us a review, we know we're watching you. We want you to get out there. We did get one this week. And this week's episode uh, has a great review coming from Cool Dude. Thanks, cool dude. I appreciate the name. Uh, he says, it's an amazing podcast, very informative. Recently got into the industry and the YVR Remo Show has made it a hell of a lot easier getting a grasp on the market trends and dealing with certain scenarios. Highly recommend. There you go. We have actually a lot of uh, industry professionals that listen to the show as well, which says a lot about the content that we're dropping. Again, if you guys are loving the show, please let us know. Reach out, send us a DM at The Mortgage Pug, at Thrive Mortgage Co., at YVR Remo Show, and we would love to to hear from you guys. Guys, we don't spend a lot of time uh, talking about our company, but we are uh, we're very proud of our company, one of the premier mortgage companies in Canada. We recently were ranked uh, top five in the entire country for the year 2020, and we're very, very thankful for the people that trust us for doing that. If you think you're a good fit to work with us, you want to be one of our clients, you want to create wealth in real estate and get a heck of a lot better of experience than you've been dealing with so far, then you want to reach out to us, send us a DM, or find us on our website at Thrive Mortgage dot ca so we can make sure to take good care of you not just for today but for years to come in any case that's it for me if you guys are loving the episode let us know enjoy this episode of what not to do part two What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. All right, so we had so many things last time around that we missed that we had to do part two of the What Not To Do podcast. Listen, first time around, we talked a lot about what not to do when it comes to actually going through the qualification process, like your income and a lot of things of that nature. This time we're going to talk about more about actually going through and looking for properties. Like example would be like what to look for when you're hiring a team, uh, refinancing, property values, the purchasing process, all sorts of stuff. We're, we just, there's so many different things we had to get back on. You know, it's a beautiful morning recording this one over here, blue skies, everything. I'm feeling, I'm feeling like this is going to be a good day and we're going to help some, uh, help some people avoid some really, really silly mistakes today. So welcome back. Uh, we got Dean back on the episode today, which is nice. And you got all, all three of us. So you got Dean, you got Derek, you got myself, Alex, and uh, 
ready to go, boys. Let's let's hop right into it. Hey, why don't we start off with Team Dean? Take us away, man. Yeah, I mean, team is such a crucial part of the entire process, and it's so important to just make sure you have the right team members on your side. And that's really, I mean, not only are we going to tell you what to look for in a team, but we're we're going to really highlight what to not look for in a team. And and I'll start first and foremost, just working with a a really good conveyancer, so a lawyer or a notary that specializes in real estate transactions. I think that is so key. Uh, just making sure that that professional really, that the, the guts of their business is focused on real estate transactions. Yeah, what not to do is is to just hire somebody that you know that you worked with. I, like I get people who've uh, talked about, well, I worked this worked with this lawyer in the past for an ICBC injury or all these different types of situations. Like if they don't go just to somebody just because they're a lawyer, it's just like working in any type of profession. Uh, you're not going to hire a foot doctor to work on your neck, right? So again, same sort of thing when it comes to lawyers. That's kind of extreme. Don't just pick anybody out of the book. Yeah, most lawyers that don't focus on real estate should actually turn you away. They shouldn't take on the business <laughs> unless they're hurting. Um, but outside of that, don't call around and find the cheapest lawyer or notary. It's going to be a terrible, terrible decision for you. Usually the cheapest is the worst, right? You get what you pay for. And, you know, between your, your real estate agent, yourself, putting so much work into finding that home and getting your mortgage completed and all the work that us or, or the financing aspect um, takes place, you know, for all that to go sideways at the last minute, a couple days before completion, because you found a, a notary that's a couple hundred bucks cheaper is a complete nightmare. Um, so yeah, pay a little bit more, get a good lawyer on hand and <laughs> it'll work out better for you. The last piece I just want to touch on here is just the fact that legal advice can only come from a lawyer. So if you are seeking actual legal advice, a notary isn't going to be the direction for you. Notaries are great to deal with. There's some really good ones that we work with. But if you're again, if you're looking for legal advice, that's not the direction. Yeah, we're going to echo that pretty much on every part of the team member. If you're just looking straight up for uh, the cheapest, you know, same thing as mortgages. Honestly, man, if you're looking for the cheapest of the cheap, you're going to get this exactly what you're looking for when it comes to the advice that you uh, need when it comes to a home. I, it actually blows my mind sometimes. Like people will drop like an extra 20 grand, 30 grand, 50, 100 grand on making an offer on a home. Uh, and then they'll look for the cheapest lawyer and the quote unquote cheapest rate and the cheapest inspector. And it's like you're trying to save, you know, uh, a couple hundred bucks, a couple of, uh, hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there, but you just spent a hundred grand over there. Like if you're going to spend that money in a house, get good advice, work with good people. They charge those rates for a reason. It's every part of the process from your real estate agent to your mortgage team, to your lawyer, to every part is just as important. So hire good people again, of course, but don't just hire people because they're cheap or not. Let's, let's move on to uh, what not to do when it comes to the lawyer process. I mean, the first thing is not actually booking your appointment. I've seen that happen a bunch of times. Oh gosh, you, especially in a market like this, you really need to be on that. We have lawyers that are declining business for the full month and we're just starting the month and they're saying, hey, we're full, we can't take any more on. Uh, so booking that appointment, as soon as we connect, uh, connect the dots, who that team member is gonna be, call them, book the appointment, let them know when your closing is uh, immediately. Yeah, I mean, they should technically be reaching out to you, but stuff happens and in busy markets, they might forget or they might miss it. And they might be calling you a week before completion and you're in Turks and Caicos on your vacation because people like to go away right before completion. Um, but yeah, just reach out, book your appointment, make sure that they're well aware and uh, having a good team like us and a good real estate agent will make that lawyer aware of it as well. 
So when we're talking about the actual team and like what not to do when it comes to teams, some of this stuff seems obvious, some of it doesn't, but we'll have people who listen to this. It's so tempting to do a couple things. Like, especially when it comes to first time buyers, we often hear like, I'm, I'm going to work, work with my my and, and this isn't the bad thing, by the way, to work with your mom's realtor. That, that can be a great thing or your dad's realtor. Where it can become concerning is when your mom or your dad's realtor worked with them 25 years ago or 15 years ago, and they're no longer active in the industry. So when you're picking your your real estate partner, your real estate agent, like are they actively selling real estate? They don't have to sell 100 homes a year, right? They don't have to do that per se, but are they actively selling? Are they actively buying? Are they part-time? Are they semi-retired? Listen, experience does matter, but if we're talking about experience from 30 years ago, that doesn't matter nearly as much as being someone who's active in the market today. And that's probably like, I see that, I can't even believe how often we see that I'm gonna work with my uncle or I'm gonna work with this person. And again, not a bad thing per se, but there's no research beyond that. And that is what's concerning. If your uncle does this all day, great. Make sure that that is the case and that you've got that experience and feedback. But man, that, that's a topic for me because I just see it all the time. Well, especially right now in a, in a market like this where it's it's so busy, right? And a lot of people are going subject free. If you have an agent that's doing a couple deals a year, maybe it's not their fault, but they're not super busy. They're not as you know grounded in this market. They don't know how to submit the offer. They don't know how to gauge a subject free offer. They don't know how to prepare for it. So working with someone that's really active in a current market like this is super important. Yeah, and just to touch on that, like if if these are professionals that aren't do not know each other, connect the dots. Make sure everyone is communicating. Realtor, mortgage broker, lawyer, you know, everyone involved, appraisers, all insurance brokers, everyone needs to know who each other are and communicate with each other right from the beginning. Usually when we're working together, we are working with professionals that we already know, we already have a relationship with, and it's it's always much more of a seamless process when, when we have familiarity. Um, but it, if that doesn't exist, that's okay. Just let's make sure we connect the dots and everyone's communicating. Yeah, on that note, so don't work with people. Don't work with people who aren't willing to communicate. Like I've worked with, uh, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but I've worked with real estate agents who won't tell me what's happening or they won't update me, and it, it makes it challenging for our clients. It actually causes a negative experience. We work with lawyers who have done the same. Uh, again, all parties of the transaction should be talking, and they should be doing it for you because it makes your life so much easier. Trust me, uh, it's a lot less stress when you don't have to figure out every single thing and pass every document over. Just let the guys behind the scenes do most of the work. It makes it easier. What else not to do? Obviously. Don't don't, don't just listen to bias advice and just take it as uh, as uh, the law. You know, obviously we have a podcast here because we can we can share our feedback and uh, our opinions, but we also try to, to spew facts to you guys. Um, you know, don't just say, yeah, this is the way it is because one person said it. Do a little bit of research. Try not to just Google it, but look up some information yourself, especially when, as it pertains to picking your, your team. You know, are they, do they have a Google review uh, page? Do they... Uh, is it generally good, right? Because you know you're going to get the couple, you know, oddballs in there. But is it generally good? What are most people saying, right? Like, uh, it, do they have a social account? Are they sharing information? If you're selling your home, do they publish your your home like successfully? Do you see it all over the place? Like, there's a lot of factors to consider, and and I think it, it is important to consider how someone uh, publishes, especially your home, and they put themselves online. So. Do due diligence. Uh, make sure the team that you're you're picking communicates. Uh, they have experience. 
they work hard and they know what's going on in the marketplace. I think that's pretty well all we got to cover on the what not to do and what to do, hey? So let's talk about process. Um, so refinancing and the actual purchasing process, like this is a big piece that we didn't cover last time. We're going to get right into it. Um, we're going to start with refinancing because we're seeing so much of it right now for good reason. People are restructuring their mortgages to reduce their payments, get rid of like high credit card debt and lines of credit, reduce the rates. Like there's just so many reasons. So we're seeing all the things that people are doing and we're like, oh my God, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, there's all these crazy things. Derek, lead us off, man. Like what are some of the top things that people are, people are doing right now that you're like, don't don't do this at this moment for refi. Yeah, well, paying off high interest debt, credit cards, lines of credit, that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of people might assume that the refinance process is going to be really quick, especially right now. Refinances are getting pushed to the back of the line, right? Like purchases are priority. They're getting pushed to the top of the list. Um, if you have a bunch of debt that's racked up, I've actually seen people stop making their debt payments, their credit card payments or line of credit payments because they think their refinance is going to close next week let alone their lawyer has to push it out three weeks because of, you know, it's a refinance and not a purchase. So stay on top of your debts until it's actually complete because it can take a little bit longer than you expect. Um, another big one right now, especially with COVID, everyone wants to fix up their house because you can't leave your house. And people are refinancing and pulling money out of their home to renovate, to fix their home up, to do yard work, whatever. Um, don't start that work until the, the refinance and the appraisal is done. If we go and get you approved and you've ripped drywall out of your kitchen, you know, your island's gone, the bank actually likely won't fund the mortgage. So you want to wait until the appraisal is fully complete, showing your home intact uh, before actually starting the renovations, if that's your plan. Yeah, to touch on that one, it's it, it kind of comes up as a surprise, like why is an appraisal required? It, it's very common that an appraisal will be required on a refinance. So make sure that's done before you start banging tolls through the wall, uh, to Derek's point. The, the other one that I've seen quite a bit is just back to timeline. So we have clients that have a mortgage coming up for renewal. And now, now they're seeing this opportunity to grab equity out of the home or do any sort of change to the mortgage, which now changes it to a refinance. But we have a very strict deadline of that maturity date. And so making sure that if we're going to miss that timeline because lawyers are backed up or because lenders are backed up, that we talk to the existing lender. If we are moving the mortgage away from that existing lender, it's really important that you talk to them that we're not going to have that mortgage moved by maturity date and that we roll that term into an, what's called an open term for six months because we've seen uh, clients miss that maturity date. And then we go and, you know, the refinance ultimately funds, say, you know, seven days later. And now the client's being charged a, a pretty significant penalty. So really watching those timelines if maturity is on the horizon and communication super important a lot of people think like okay i'm paying off my mortgage i don't have to talk to the current lender they're calling me but i'm going to ignore them because i'm paying it out communicate with them tell them what's going on tell them that you're leaving right that's all you have to do and then like dean said get into that open term because it's huge i had a client that uh she completely avoided communication with her existing lender and it was an alternative lender and they rolled her into a one-year fixed term and she ended up with a $13,000 penalty just because she didn't communicate that with them. Communication of the timeline with all of us is really important. There's a lot of reasons where people are pulling out equity and we, we're not even aware of what the, the, the dates that they may need the money to so just make sure everyone's online because those files are getting pushed right now in a busy market. They're getting pushed naturally by the lenders. All the time, all the time. Definitely good conversations to have. So uh, other things to look out for guys, some things not to to do on a timing front. Um, so a lot of our clients look at pulling equity out for the, the reasons of uh, purchasing other real estate. 
Um, some people, they're pulling out preemptively or, or just doing a refinance to setting up a line of credit. It doesn't mean they're necessarily going to buy a piece of real estate tomorrow, but it could be, you know, three months, six months, 12 months down the line. Um, but we've had situations where we're in the middle of restructuring a file and then a client's gone and got an accepted offer on another property without you know give us giving them the green light that they're good to go and do that and so the problem with that is that now we have to disclose to a lender uh that you have purchased a second property and in fact we might have to work with that same lender and so there's two things that can happen there number one your purchase might not work out because you don't have the ability to cover the debt um on both of those properties and the sec second thing that can happen is it can come substantially reduce what you can actually qualify for your for your refinance don't go ahead and get an offer accepted without talking to us about it. Um, and definitely uh, don't get too excited about purchasing that second property until you've closed. Yeah, and just to go a little deeper on that piece, um, why you wouldn't necessarily qualify for two at the same time is because if you're applying for two mortgages at the exact same time, you have to stress test both mortgages. Whereas if the refinance is already completed, we can use the physical payment that you have to qualify. Whereas when you're doing both at the same time, like I said, you have to stress test both and it's much harder to qualify. So doing them at the same time is, uh, it can be challenging. It can actually, yeah, like Alex said, you could not qualify for your purchase. So much there, so much there. So for when it comes to refinancing, timing, know, know your maturity dates, uh, converse and talk to your mortgage broker. Again, there's a lot of strategy that goes into this. It's not as simple as just here's your rate, here's your date. Give yourself enough time and don't start your reno until afterwards. Oh yeah, and don't spend any more money on your credit cards because there could be a shortfall. I've seen that happen a bunch like, like you guys said. So let's talk a little bit about property value because that lines right up into refinancing. Guys, when you're refinancing, one of the coolest things about doing that, and I've done this recently on three of my properties, is refinancing and restructuring to take advantage of the new property value. But there's some considerations here when it comes to refinancing and your property value or purchasing. There's just generally speaking, property value is a huge question mark. First, I want to touch really quickly on one thing that we hear all the time, which is that when we ask someone, hey, do you have an idea of what your property value is? And they give us the assessment number. So first thing, don't assume your property value is linked to your property assessment. Those two are very different. In fact, the property assessment is just like, it's it's just actually a computer derived value based on a number of other properties that the computer sees in the area uh, and says your property could be worth from six months before. So do not go on that value. I mean, heck, your home could be worth $800,000 on your assessment from 2020, but it could be worth $1.2 million today. And you're missing out on $400,000 of equity if you think that's the value. So number one, don't look at that number. Oh, it's such a huge point. I mean, in fact, like those those values are actually derived in July uh, of every year. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're a year away pretty much from that. And they... Oh my, there's been a lot of change in this market in one year, especially this year. So yeah, definitely don't... Uh, don't follow that uh, for value. One big thing I see with properties, and 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 this comes up a lot, especially in the Langley Valley, Fraser Valley area, is where we have large parcels of land. Anything above five acres that have, you know, typically these properties are, you know, if they're above five acres, they probably have other buildings on the properties where they got, you know, big horse barns that are worth, you know, sometimes a million dollars. Um, these these second buildings, which we call outbuildings, are not used in the value for the appraisal. So the bank tells the appraiser, please only evaluate the first five acres. So if it's a 10 acre parcel, you're only getting uh, value for five acres and one building. A lot of times it's just one building, the, the main home that you live in. So we've seen appraisals come in like half of what they actually would be because they're not looking at all these other important items on the property and the bank drives that. So the bank tells the appraiser, this is how we want the home appraised. It's very common. It, it, most banks are this way. So don't get mad at the bank. This is like 
pretty much black and white across the board with most lenders. There are some give and take with alternative lenders and private lenders, but for the purpose of this discussion, we're considering, you know, your AAA sources. Yeah, exactly. Every lender is a little bit different, but for the most part, you know, they're, they're fairly restrictive. Um, but back to the, you know, the value piece and assessments on the flip side to that, we see a lot of people that, you know, their house is the nicest house on the street and, and their neighbors sold for a million, but our house is nicer and we just painted it. So it's worth 1.3. You got to be conservative at the same time. So a lot of times we'll actually get an estimate from an appraiser because, you know, someone comes to us and they tell us that their house is worth 1.5 million and it turns out to be 1.2. Everything that we plan for, the approval, like all the work that's been completed uh, on both sides kind of goes out the window, right? So try to be conservative when you're estimating value. Yeah. So basically, uh, long and the short of it is you got to get a valuation from somebody who does this for a living. Don't just assume anything. So don't assume. Um, we, you talked a little bit, uh, Dean, about uh, property uh, sizes. So that's actually a really interesting one, because if we talk about property value and property size, we haven't really talked about cities and locations and uh, the acreages. So like, you know, a lot of people right now are moving out of the city and they're like, oh, I want to buy that 25 acre, 35 acre parcel up in I don't know, outside of Kamloops or, or Barrier or all these different uh, towns and cities. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Yellowstone. Everyone's Yellowstone. looking at the Yellowstone property. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's watching a little bit too much Kevin Costner up there and uh, getting excited about having a ranch with a couple of bulls. And so, uh, yeah, basically the long and the short of it is, you know, don't assume that just because you qualify for that amount of money that you can get a ranch out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when it comes to properties, but like, yeah, don't assume that one. That's a, that's a big, big piece. Uh, you talked a little bit about horses. So horses, uh, and animals obviously change how a lender will look at your property as well, because there's a different type of valuation. We could be looking at farmland. All these things matter when it comes to your property valuation. We've touched on this in previous episodes, like the idea of financing a farm, an active farm can be very difficult. And it's all because of the foreclosure act. It's not because of the value. It's actually, if you get in trouble and don't make your mortgage payments, it's very hard for a lender to foreclose on an active farm because it's looked at as like an active income. Um, so it's uh, it's a t different legal process and banks would choose to just stay away from it. So true. Okay, let's talk about the purchasing process because we're talking about buying a farm or buying properties in general. Let's just talk a little bit more. We talked about uh, this. This works actually perfectly into this because we talked a little bit about what not to do when it comes to team, what not to do when it comes to property, what not to do when it comes to property values. So let's talk about buying those unique properties with out a clear conversation in hand. So maybe you are looking for the farm or maybe you are looking for that Yellowstone, you know, parcel or whatever. Don't go ahead and start placing offers, especially unconditional offers on these properties in the middle of nowhere without having a very clear conversation with your financing team. It's so important. The timelines can be different right? Like for example, getting an appraiser to an appraise a farm is very, 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 very different than getting an appraisal on a single family detached home in the city. Very different process. There are a lot of appraisers who won't do it. And honestly, we recently had uh, to arrange a, a farm appraisal in this busy market and it was a three week process just to get them in there, right? So it's, it's a lot different of a, a consideration when it comes to looking at any unique property. So basically, if you're looking at anything that's outside of a standard pro home, don't do it without a clear communication. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a, there's a few things you can do to kind of prepare yourself for that. One is called a property disclosure statement. It's it's the seller disclosing to you everything they know is wrong with the property. Uh, read that thing very closely. Uh, we've had properties, clients go subject free in these crazy markets. 
you know, on an acreage property and we find out that the groundwater is, is really bad and it's pretty much a marsh that they bought and the, it, there is going to be no uh, real usage of the more than half of the property. Uh, lenders are going to maybe just decline it for that reason, or they're going to really taper down the loan to value, meaning you're going to have to put a lot more money down. So just again, working with the right professionals, you're right. This was a good segue. Professionals like a really good realtor will outline these things and read those items for you. Yeah. I mean, in this market, a lot of people are going subject free, no conditions. You're committing to buying that property when you write the offer deposit in hand. And a lot of people don't really think about you know, that the lender has the security in mind. The lender needs to know that that property is safe and sound. And in addition to that, timelines, right? If you're going subject free and you're, you have a two week close, if something goes wrong, two weeks is not enough time to go and find another lender, to find, you know, a financing source to actually get your, your purchase completed. So anytime someone's going subject free, um, especially if they're working with us, we do a lot of planning and it's typically better to get longer uh, completion dates just in case something does come up, you know, an appraisal's backed up. You have a little bit more time to get everything done. No question. No question. So again, uh, don't just leave things to the last minute. It's what I heard there, especially when you're purchasing home. You know, we had a, a file dropped on our desk recently where the client made a subject free offer with like what you said, a two week closing time. And they didn't really have a whole lot of options because nobody would pick up that file and they had to close private. So uh, don't do that without clear communication from the team is what I'm getting from all that. So just a little bit about, uh, you know, get, getting things done. So don't uh, obviously do all this stuff without the communication. Don't use random properties. Don't do this without a true pre-approval. Uh, we'll talk about scenarios, guys. I can see them all day long. Talked to a gentleman last night, 6.30 in the evening. Had a quick little phone call. Guy was you know, really upset and uh, stressed out. Been shopping for four months. Uh, the real estate agent actually tried to introduce him to us. They want to stick with their bank, which is totally fine. Guess what? The bank didn't do a true pre-approval with this client, which they said they did. And now the client's declined. And he's got one day to subject removal timeline. Don't go shopping without out a true pre-approval. It's obviously not a complete guarantee. We still need to make sure you're still working your job. You still need to make sure you're paying off your debts, right? If you don't pay your debts off, that's your own problem. But if you do everything and you say what you're going to do and you, you show it to us in advance, you will know exactly what you can qualify for. I can't stress this enough. It's actually insane how it happens every single day. I think the problem here is I'm just going to go on a little tangent and you guys can hop in anytime, but going on a little rant here, but the problem is that people have this trust in the bank brand. Keep in mind the people that they're hiring to work in the banks, they're not licensed. Most of them could have come from a basic education. And that's not a bad thing, by the way, there's nothing wrong with someone's education, but they're not trained in mortgage underwriting. They're trained in customer service and experience. And so you know, knowing that your bank only has one option, one solution, and their process isn't to fully underwrite a file in advance, don't trust the brand name. You got to really understand and make sure you do the due diligence and make sure that that, that company or that team is going through the process for you. Get a true pre-approval. My, my rant's over. That was it. I get heated up over that. So. Oh, it's so important because, you know, again, back to the true pre-approval and then back to the point of, you know, the property being the security for the lender. The true pre-approval is 100% recommended, but it's always really important to keep in mind that there is no emphasis on a property because the property doesn't exist yet. You're just, we're just looking at you as an individual and your personal borrowing capability, your credit worthiness, all of that is what we're looking at. Um, but there is no property. So it's just really important to know that even when you do have a true pre-approval through a company like ours, you can be really confident, but again, the property is gonna be heavily analyzed and it's going to be the 
you know, the deciding factor if this deal gets done or not. Okay, so a couple more don'ts on the properties. Uh, we'll, we we talked a bit about locations. We'll, we'll a couple more. I basically, we'll just talk a little bit more about properties, and then we'll we'll end off with some investing, what not to do's here on this, right? So uh, a couple more don'ts. Don't assume that uh, a grow up is going to get financed the same as a typical um, regular, you know property without a grow up. I, I don't even think we spend much time on that. Grow up is not uh, considered the same. It is there for life, guys. Once someone claims that there's been a grow up in that property and they've grown marijuana plants, it is it is like that for life. Most lenders will not finance those types of properties and forever and going forward, it's got to be disclosed. There's no way to get rid of that stigma. The only way that I know of is if the house is completely ripped apart, torn down to the, sh uh, to, like, to the ground and rebuilt. Typically people will come to us and they found a property that's on lease land and, and maybe you're getting a nicer property for a lower value, a lower cost. So typically lease land properties will not appreciate the same. It is tougher to get financing. It's less marketable. Um, not all lenders will offer financing on lease land. You know, there's so many different types of leases. There's, there's government leases, there's private leases, there's native lease land. Um, really understanding the details of that lease. When is it up? Is, is there money outstanding? How does it all work? Um, so typically, like I say, you know, if, if you can avoid it, it's best. Um, you're typically going to see more appreciation if you're buying just a standard freehold home. But, um, it, you know, it all ties into marketability, right? People think they're getting a good deal on a property, but you got to think when you're in the seller's shoes. What if, you know, seven of the 10 buyers looking at your home can't get financing because their bank says no? right? You're not going to have the same traction as a freehold home when it comes time to sell. I think a lot of this comes back to marketability of a property. A lot of people think like just because it's cheap, uh, you know, it's it's a grow up, it's a leased land. Um, it, next one would be don't just buy a mobile home or a manufactured home. Um, it's all about marketability. You got to keep in mind if the property values are not going to increase the same, if the property isn't as marketable, if it doesn't last as long or the economic life is shorter, it's not worth as much, which means to a bank, that's a big consideration. If you can't make your mortgage payments and they have to foreclose on your property, their number one consideration is how quickly can I resell this thing? Am I going to lose money? And for that reason, there's other considerations, obviously, but that is one of the primary considerations. And if that isn't uh, a, a quick possibility, which is the case in lease lands, grow ops, uh, mobile homes, uh, and, and other types of issue uh, properties, then the property is going to be worth less and a lot of lenders won't touch it straight up. So don't just go randomly purchase one of those properties. Uh, title, Dean, you want to touch a little bit on title? Yeah, this is such an important one. And, and to be honest, like title is, it, it honestly doesn't look like English when you're reading it. Um, it, it. It can be very convoluted to look at one of those and understand what is actually on there and what actually is even relevant to you and what's going to be removed from title just simply from the transaction taking place. So it's really important to look at title, but it's also important to go back to the team uh, remembering who the team is and having the right person help you with reviewing that title and knowing what to actually look at. So I'll plug Tony Spagnolo here. He has a he has a title review process with his team. He's a lawyer in, in BC here and they review that title for you. So again, having legal advice this is where legal advice can be really crucial. Um, just making sure that's looked at by a professional it, it, again is so important. And, you know, to be honest, like us and the realtors, we do miss things on there. It, it, it's very important that if it's a convoluted title, if there's any confusion that a lawyer looks at that. No question. I think you hit the nail on your head. Uh, nice little plug for Tony there. And uh, let's, yeah, let's move on. Last thing on properties, guys. 
Uh, this is one that comes up probably every third person that's buying a detached home. Uh, don't just assume because a property has a, a bedroom in uh, a, the home in the downstairs that it is a basement suite. Uh, to be considered a basement suite, uh, actually, that really depends on the lender type. And that's why it's obviously great that we have options. Uh, certain lenders will want it to be authorized. Some lenders are okay with an unauthorized suite, but it must be its own separate residence. That is so important. That's the number one thing that you have to look out for if you're purchasing a home and you want to use the rental income from a basement suite. It must have its own entrance, its own windows, its own kitchen, its own bathroom, and it must be locked off from the house. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to have a bedroom because there are some studio suites and that is acceptable, but it has to be its own living. You can't just be able to walk in and out of that space that is not considered the same as a separate suite. Yeah, and a lot of people come to us, you know, we've pre-approved them with rental income from a basement suite and they will go and write an offer and they say, well, the suite's roughed in, like the kitchen's roughed in, I'm gonna build a suite. That does not work. Everything that Alex just mentioned, it has to physically be there. You have to physically be able to rent it out on day of completion. If you plan on building the suite later, we cannot use the rental income and you could not qualify. I'll throw one asterisk into that point, Derek, because uh, people do ask questions. There is one slight way around this. There are a few alternate banks. So there are a couple alternate banks that on occasion will make an exception uh, to add in the sweet income with it being partially done. But again, because we're primarily talking to people who are looking for everyday conventional financing, uh, our point is valid. Yeah, one of the famous ones I see quite regularly particularly in the Surrey area. I don't know what it is, but there's a lot of hot plates sitting in basement suites in Surrey. And we get, you know, pictures of, oh yeah, we got a full suite. And it's like, nah, okay, there's a there's a sink and a hot plate and that's it. And uh, unfortunately that is not a kitchen and that's not gonna work. That's correct. That is correct. Okay, so we touched a little bit on location before. Let's just round the uh, round up the corners here on the uh, location piece. Maybe a couple things uh, not to assume. Uh, I'll start her off here, guys. Don't assume that uh, a cabin on an island is going to be financed by every lender. Uh, boat access is, is okay for some lenders, but not okay for many others. Uh, don't just assume that uh, the, every property is the same location. I honestly, like just straight up, like if you're looking at a location outside of a major city center, it's going to be different for every different institution. Just to make sure you're having that communication. Don't just assume. Yeah, lenders have something called a sliding scale. And, you know, like as an example, in Greater Vancouver, they might lend on 80% of the property value. And as you get out to Chilliwack, they might scale back to 75. As you go to Merritt, they might only lend 65% of the property value. So location is huge. Property type is huge. Um, but as you get more rural and very unique properties, lenders might still be willing to consider. You might not have the pick of the litter, um, but you might also have to put more money down. That sliding scale thing, like I explained that uh, quite a bit, and that is a confusing uh, topic to have with people because it's so subjective to short version, guys, if you're buying again outside of a, an urban center. And, hey, I, like honestly, like crazy thing about this is for anybody who lives in, in the lower mainland or uh, even on the island in some cases, is, you know, Vancouver, generally speaking, the, the values are higher. So lenders will lend a higher percentage of the property value. But Mission, which is just outside of Maple Ridge, for anybody who doesn't know, in, in Lower Mainland or Fraser Valley, which is a growing city. And Chilliwack, honestly, up until this year, most lenders would not lend 80% of the property value or with 20% down if the purchase price was over 750k. We're seeing most of the detached homes over $750,000 now. So crazy enough, they still 
still haven't adapted their scale. So a lot of those transactions are having to get management approvals, which means you can't put that on a pre-approval letter, but you need to be aware about these things before you go into it. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but you gotta be aware. So don't just assume that you could put 20% down on a $1.5 million property anywhere because you can in Vancouver. That is so key. Yeah, it's a good point. And most single families with a detached suite now in the Chilliwack area are pushing 900K. So it, it's a it's a big factor to consider. Same thing outside of any city center. If you're in the Okanagan, Kelowna is one thing. Stepping outside the city is another. Um, if you're in, you know, obviously on the island, Victoria is one thing. Head up the coast to Port Alberni, another consideration. Uh, same thing in, in Alberta, Calgary, and, and so forth. So just check those things out. Have those conversations. Um, look at the populations. Just do your due diligence. Guys, let's end it off with a little bit about some uh, investing topics because we know we have a lot of clients of ours who probably got a lot of value from a lot of these points, but they want to know a couple things about uh, the investment piece um, and, and, you know, what are some of the things you don't want to do as it pertains to that. So Derek, why don't you start us off here on that? Yeah, I mean, one to touch on, which I've seen a few times recently is, um, you know, people might not qualify to get into a home that they actually want to live in. And a lot of people think they can go and buy a rental property with 5% down, 10% down, 15% down. You technically cannot buy an investment property. You have to have 20% down. And another piece on that is a lot of people want to use gifted funds. So this is for the most part, most lenders will not allow gifted money to buy an investment property. It has to be personal savings. There are a couple one-off situations that can work. It's quite rare. Um, but if that is your plan, make sure you have a conversation around the financing because it's not as easy as it seems. Yeah, one, one common area that I see come up uh, quite a bit is multiple properties. So a client having say maybe more than five properties well qualified to buy the six property, but not realizing that lenders have a door limit and you, we can't exceed five properties in the portfolio, not just that the, the lenders lent mortgages on, but your specific portfolio, you can't exceed five doors. So a perfect example, I had a client pre-approved them for $1.2 million mortgage. They decided to buy two properties instead of one, two smaller properties. And unfortunately, the, the the second one got declined because that was his sixth door and we had to look at a different lender option for that. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so assumptions over number of doors. Uh, so doors and specific properties are, are different considerations like rental units. Um, assuming your bank will just qualify you. The relationship piece, you know, Derek, that's a big one because we hear a lot of, oh, I've got a relationship with my bank. They'll, they'll approve this, no problem. It doesn't count for much these days, guys. Uh, you know, sometimes credit unions are a little bit interesting uh, like that once in a blue moon. You know, uh, they want to see a lot of your banking in-house. They, you know, that's the kind of thing where we see smaller credit unions use a relationship, but it's not very common these days anymore to see that uh, sort of consideration. Um, another uh, quick one, don't assume your short-term rental income counts the same as your long-term rental income. Believe it or not, most banks and institutions still do not recognize Airbnb uh, or any of those other uh, short-term rental incomes daily, weekly, even a monthly uh, rental income is the same. They're going to look at long-term income. That's a that's a big piece, and we see that uh, confusion all the time. Hey, I'm earning, you know, you know, thirty-six thousand dollars a year on this condo that's a short-term rental in Kelowna. Well, that's awesome. Like from a dollar's perspective, it's a great investment. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean your lender is going to consider that thirty-six thousand dollars. Yeah, and on the on the note of rental income, make sure that if you have an existing rental property or a basement suite, any type of rental income coming in, you have to claim it on your taxes. You have to pay tax on it. You can have write-offs. You can bring the net income down quite dramatically. But if it's not on there, a lot of lenders actually won't use the rental income in your next mortgage application, which can really hinder what you qualify for. 
Yeah, on the topic of rental income, make sure you actually deposit it into your bank account. We've had month to month contracts where uh, clients just receive cash from their tenant in, in hand and, and the lender now asks for, hey, can you please provide three months of bank statements to show that the rental income is being deposited and, and you can't show that. So I would definitely not accept cash except an e-transfer, just get some sort of digital verification that you're receiving the rental income. Whether you're on, I mean, for sure, if you're on a month to month contract, but I would just kind of make that a standard process. So that can come up and it comes up regularly now. Don't assume that uh, just because you got pre-qualified and you bought the rental property last year with a certain lender that their policies are the same this year. Policies change all the time. Don't make any assumptions on the rental income that will qualify. Like, I mean, just overarching, uh, thoughts on this topic right here, or don't assume anything realistically, because the the target's moving on a regular basis. And and I think uh, one of the points that Dean you put in here, uh, or, or or Derek was that not working with someone who understands the space is key. Again, if you're working with someone who who uh, specifically only works or does a lot of work with just you know I don't know construction or just uh, first time buyers, or that's their prior, prior experience. Don't assume that they fully understand a lot of the renter rental policies that are out there. So, uh, not working with somebody who understands the type of investment property that you're looking to purchase is a big mistake that we see people make all the time. So I'll, I'll end it off one last thing on the investment piece. And then, and, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's coming up in the, in the coming few weeks of the podcast here and, and what to expect says, uh, there's a lot coming up here and we got a lot of things planned. So uh, biggest uh, last mistake that I'll talk about on the investment piece, I, I sh we should probably do a full episode on this, to be honest with you, because I go on is assuming do not assume that putting an alternate or a private lender on your investment property is a bad thing or is going to make it not make sense. That's one of the biggest assumptions that I see in here all the time. Oh, I have to go with a private or I have to go with an alternate or something of that nature that that's not going to make the deal work. Don't assume. Look at the numbers. Look at the vision and use what you see on paper as your guiding principles. Don't put emotion into the play and don't just assume that it's not gonna work for you. So that, that, that comes up all the time. And I know that a lot of the experienced investors we work with, they get it. They look at the numbers. Yeah, makes sense. Let's do it. But uh, a lot of first-time investors or second-time investors uh, get stressed out and emotional that they can't qualify at their bank and they don't want to look at other options. And they let a great deal go by because they're not willing to look at the whole scenario and the numbers. So Guys, we've got a couple of uh, exciting things coming up on the podcast in the next few weeks and months. We've been really trying to, you know, play around and experiment this year with the podcast. You know, we we have a an angle where we, we educate anybody, real estate agents and uh, clients, you know, first time buyers. We try to make it obviously applicable, but we want to start uh, doing different types of specialty episodes and uh, series. So um, just a little bit of a sneak preview. Dean's uh, lined up a couple of uh, episodes for us. I think we have five episodes where we're going to touch on a topic because the question comes up so much. We decided to dig deep and get in a little bit to uh, construction financing. Dean, like maybe give us a little bit of an overview on what we're, uh, we're going to see and what we're going to hear in the next uh, few weeks and months in the construction series. Yeah, construction kind of ebbs and flows and like people wanting to do it or, or it kind of quieting down. And as of right now, it's a hot topic. A lot of people are looking to build a home uh, to live in. And so this this series is going to be really all about construction financing, what to expect with construction financing, the process. It's very different. The lender options, there are very uh, different reasons why you would use a private lender, why you would use a construction specific lender, why you would use a bank. So we're going to go through all of that. Uh, we got some really cool interviews with professionals in these spaces. So whether it's 
the construction uh, based lending. We have some professionals to bring in to talk on that, that we work with regularly. We have builders that we're going to be talking to about the whole construction process, the cost per square foot. Uh, we got a really cool um, segment on just multifamily construction. So people building multifamily projects, townhome projects, condo buildings. So we're really going to try and dive into every aspect of construction financing and the construction process. And uh, that's why it is going to be a series and it likely will be about five episodes. Cool. I'm pumped on that. I'm pumped on that. So guys, if you're listening in, well, obviously you're listening at this point right now, if you're excited and you want to hear more about uh, construction, uh, a little bit more about restructuring refinancing. If you want to focus more on uh, some of our real estate agents and the cities and towns, which we're going to continue to do, let us know. So we got the construction series coming up. Uh, we also have some other uh, series that we're pumped on bringing out to you guys. As always, uh, tag us at the YVR Remo Show. The team here is Thrive Mortgage Co. We are your uh, financing experts helping you create wealth in your vision. If you want to get a complimentary review and you want to talk to us to see if we're a good fit to support you and your family and your dreams, just make sure to send us a DM or go to our website, thrivemortgage.ca, fill out the form, and we'll be in touch with you uh, as quick as we possibly can. Thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure to leave that five-star review and we'll see you next time.